0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the episode 69 of the Fire Science Show. In the podcast, I try to explore topics, subjects in fire science, fire engineering that may not be that well familiar to all of the fire engineers. And I have a pretty simple, maybe not the most effective, but simple and a quick method to scout for these topics. I search for topics that I have not been exposed to that very much in my professional education or career. And I guess if me having not encountered uh, some of these topics for a decade, uh, many of you may have not as well. And uh, I guess it's fascinating to learn together. Um, I mean, if you have a more robust solution on finding subjects, let me know. I think it's working quite okay so far. So let's try to stick that. And actually, I'm a little ashamed that I have not been exposed to the subject of today's talk. Because today we're going to talk about the wildland-urban interface the ui fires how they are called uh, in some parts of the world in in fact in Poland where i work where i live we don't really have that big wildfire problem and uh, looking at the news uh, stories from southern europe from us from other parts of the world are absolutely devastating to see these massive massive fires develop and what i realize is is that we do not have that topic yet but eventually i guess we will and that that frightens me a lot and this is why i am very willing to learn about this these things to maybe one day um use that knowledge to to save my family to to help my people <laughs> my country and if you're in a region which is affected i guess that episode is even better fit for you i hope you will enjoy it a lot i have invited a very very good guest to talk about this professor mike golner from university of california berkeley who's uh, well-known uh, in, in uh, all subjects uh, combustion, wildfire-related. He's been a guest on the podcast where we talked about the role of fluid mechanics in, in fire engineering and some other fascinating stuff about fire engineering. And uh, It was a very popular episode. Everyone loves Michael. So I guess you will enjoy this as well. We go uh, through what is the wildland-urban interface. We try to really pinpoint on what the difference is in fire threat in in a compartment in a building, and what's the fire threat uh, when you're battling a, a forest fire, a wildfire? I guess that's a very interesting discussion that shows how the paradigms are different in these fields, and these different paradigms dictate different techniques, different solutions, different uh, pathways to to the solution. For me, someone who's done only buildings, that was very very interesting. And also in the end, Mike uh, shares a personal story. He's been involved in evacuating from a wildfire near near his home and it's very interesting to hear this from a fire scientist you know from from someone who's very well knowledgeable in in the subject so it's very interesting uh, I mean it's quite sad that he had to encounter that but as he did and we cannot change that it's it's great to learn from his observations so that's towards the end of the episode so you might want to listen till the end hey i guess i've already sold you the episode <laughs> It's a really great talk with Michael. I'm very happy that he came back to the podcast and share with me his views on Wii Fires and his personal stories related to that. So, yeah, let's not prolong that anymore. Let's spin the intro and let's go. Welcome to the Firesize Show. My name is Wojciech Vinczynski and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Fire Science Show. We have uh, another comeback to the podcast, Professor Michael Golner. Hey, Mike. Hey, how's it going? Hey, good to see you again. How's the weather in, in California? Did you finally get some rain? We finally did. It's, it's fantastic because the
1: Mosquito Fire has been burning near Tahoe and, and it finally relented a bit. Uh, we got a little uh, leftover of a hurricane or something here and we needed that water.
0: First time in my life I hear someone uh, cheering a leftover of a hurricane, but I guess that's the that's the world we live in now.
1: <laughs> Thankfully, just some rain for us, and we really needed we really needed this rain. It's it's been a rough season. Luckily, not the we disasters haven't been exorbitant like some years past, but we've had a lot of fires back to back. And uh, I don't know if it's a season-ending event, but it
0: should mm-hmm. relent a lot after this rain. Isn't this horrible we, we've started talking about fire seasons? What, when did we start talking about fire seasons, Mike? In Poland we never talked about fire seasons, actually.
1: You know, I, I grew up in California. California has always yeah. had, so I don't know about the rest of the world, but California has always had fire season. But, you know, it was a summer and, and in Southern California especially early fall, because you have these Santa Ana or uh, mm. phone winds that come, that blow down hot and, and dry. But they were a season. It's almost year round. Some of our top 10 fires have been in December. So wow. it, it yeah. really feels like the weather patterns are changing. Like it, there are always bad days. Just a lot more bad days, a lot more drought, oh, yeah. a lot more often, a lot more extremes. And in the last 20, 30 years, you know, we can no longer just bring on a seasonal crew. Someone's got to be there mm. year round. And it's more likely in you know the summer months, but it's happening year round. So it, it is a significant change in the last 30 to 50
0: years. It's an interesting observation and then very on the on the subject of today's episode where we, which is the wildland urban interface and I've noticed we we have never actually talked about in the podcast yet a good moment to do so finally, like before the hundred so i let's say it's early yeah. in the show we talk about this so wildland urban interface interesting interesting problem I must say as an engineer in Poland, I never was really exposed to this. Like My knowledge ends up on on determining the distance between the forest and your nearest house, that there's like a law that tells you how far you should be. And that's it. There's where your fire engineering would end. And now talking with people around the world, this topic pops everywhere. It's uh, It seems to be a very popular research area. It's a very needed area. It's, an, it's also a, a part of fire engineering that that breaks into mainstream media like no other you never see like mainstream media talking uh, about like combustion fundamentals, you know, <laughs> or, or yeah. smoldering fires. No, that's really. But but um, we always get a lot of coverage because it's something that matters to to a lot of people. So I, I thought let's bring we to more fire engineers who maybe as naive as I am and uh, they've never had a chance to really learn this part of fire science. So maybe it would be great to to start from the scratch, like. What happens when wildlife mil- meets urban areas?
1: Sure. Well, you know, and we'll start with all of it, saying that, that some of the definitions are a bit loose, and it depends on where in the world yeah. you are. We don't even call it wild and urban interface. We don't even call it wildfires. You know, down under in Australia, you you call it bushfires, but it's generally <laughs> you know the burning vegetation and natural materials, undeveloped land. That's a wildland fire. Um, could be a forest, grassland, shrub, chaparral. But when it meets developed areas, there's this interface. So it's an area where any of the undeveloped land meets our built environment. And mm. that's what we generally in the in the U.S. now are calling WUI, or W-U-I, Wild and Urban mm. Interface. And, and it's hard to exactly define. There's been some studies that have mapped it in different ways. I like to define it that it's not just the area where it meets, but the area that can be affected. So if the fire can get in Mm -hmm. and spread a certain distance, don't ask me to exactly predict that. We're working on that. (laughs) But as far as it can affect, that's all probably wild and urban interface because we'll learn embers fly in. So it's like not just at that point. It, It goes some distance into a community, and that's where we've seen disasters. So this wild and urban interface often starts from the vegetation or the forest or, you know, whatever it is and spreads and, and there's different areas. It can be more polluted, So it can be more like your forest cabin. And to be honest, you know, 50, 80 years ago, the protection, people were thinking about having your cabin fire, not start the forest on fire. But now mm-hmm. the main focus is that fire on the natural landscape igniting could be a cabin, could be a string mm-hmm. of homes, could be a suburban development or even yep. something denser, but it's where that meets. And whether that is a park, that's very natural in the middle of a city. If you look at San Diego, where I, I did my PhD, there's a lot of like canyons and then all the ridgetops are homes and around. And so there's a mix of natural and uh, developed areas. Any of that can be a wooey area because that can spread naturally and into homes. And then even jump back and forth
0: as it spreads. How it differs from the normal problems you would have in, in, in your, let's say, house or whatever uh, building you, you're designing. I, I guess the first thing is the threat comes from outside, but probably there's more to that, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, what? it's a completely different way of thinking about the risk from the built environment when we're indoors versus outdoors because we're now worried whether... It's already spread to your neighbor's house and your neighbor's house is trying to ignite yours or Mm -hmm. the vegetation is igniting the house or embers, which are small burning particles ignite from that fire, fly, land, smolder, and eventually ignite something in your yard that ignites your home or the home directly on like a wood roof or in a crevice. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But any of these mechanisms spread that fire from the outside into your home and And the investigations into Huey fires have been really interesting to see just just how that spread and how the dynamics are different. And maybe Mm -hmm. I can get into it. Yeah. You know, we, inside a house, we're so compartmentalized. We either have, we might have sprinklers to contain the fire. It doesn't put it out. It contains it within a room. But our rooms have, you know, drywall covering. We have doors and there's fire doors, right? We try to contain the fire to its origin here. The fire is all around us and we don't often look at the exterior of a building trying to prevent a fire coming in. So there's a lot of vulnerabilities in traditional construction, wooden decks. We found all sorts of of interesting aspects, and we'll talk about how to protect that are really vulnerable. But a lot of the destruction, it doesn't just ignite on the outside. We actually see there's a a lot of homes that burn from the inside out. You know, you get Mm -hmm. one ember inside, and then with no one there the home burns down. And so there's, wooey just takes a different type of thinking. And once you understand mm-hmm. these processes, which, which we can go through, then I think the mitigation measures make a lot more sense. But, you know, not not every wildfire next to a community is is going to cause a wooey fire and actually burn in and cause a disaster. It okay. takes some pretty extreme conditions.
0: Yeah. Are, are we capable of like, Defining, more or less, uh, where it becomes uh, this this disastrous phenomena? Well, I think we struggle to define what becomes a disaster.
1: But we know that a disaster is already present when we're losing multiple homes. So once we're Mm -hmm. actually damaging the infrastructure, when we're damaging places people live, when people are being hurt or killed, we know that we've turned from fire into a disaster. And it's not too hard to make that leap. But we have to have some real conditions to do that. Because if you just have a small fire, the fire department can respond, put it out, or they can protect the homes. But that's what's different in the wild and urban interface. You're not talking about two structures, three alarm fire. You're talking about maybe, let's say, 10 kilometer wide fire front, spewing embers Mm -hmm. two kilometers ahead of the fire. You got a huge area all being impacted how many thousands and thousands of homes. There's no way you can have enough resources to protect them. And so you need a fire that's at that size and that speed and that scale. And that usually means dry conditions for a period of time, higher winds, low humidity, which happen Mm -hmm. all the time around the world, but are much more common in certain regions. You need enough vegetation and wildland fuel to ignite. and, And then, you know, in some ways, our, our community is now a target. So you need a target that's receptive to a hit, and then that fire comes up. And if you start burning a lot of houses at once, very often, by embers. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that the embers can travel so far and land into such a spread, they tend to be responsible. Some investigations have said 50 to 80% of the destruction. And because of that, fires, you don't know where that next fire is going to pop up. And it becomes impossible for the fire crew to protect. And in a lot of these very fast fires, middle of the night, so the Tubbs Fire in California burn 9,000 homes, the Camp Fire, 18,000 structures, it becomes a full evacuation and fire crews are pulled out. Their only responsibility is saving lives. They're no longer doing structure protection. There are no resources. And so that's the epitome of the ultimate disaster scenario.
0: From your description, I also see one more astounding difference from this type of fire and the fires that I would normally deal with. It's the disproportionate damage compared to the size of the source of ignition and how quickly the fire spreads. You know, If you were in mm-hmm. a building in, nor- in normal conditions and you have a tiny ember fly in and start smoldering, start a tiny fire, I don't know what, what growth rate it would be. Uh, would it be slow, medium? It uh, depends on what it lands. If it lands on your couch, of course, that's that's a different story. But if it lands on your porch, it's not a very quick fire spread. It's just there is absolutely nothing to stop it. In a normal building, in normal conditions, you would be able to react. And, you know, we, we live in this paradigm that firefighters will come and save you. In this case you brought up doesn't work because they have 10 kilometers of houses and they're probably busy evacuating people. So you're in binary mode. If you get ignition, I'm sorry, uh, it's, it's lost. If you don't get an ignition, congratulations, you're good you got lucky, right? So, so it breaks so many paradigms of of how we would deal with fire engineering because the lines of safety, you know, your ability to react to fire, your ability to be informed about the fire. I mean, it doesn't really help when your smoke alarm tells you your house is on fire when you're 100 kilometers away being evacuated, right? So, so these lines of defense <laughs> right. are suddenly like, they don't don't exist anymore. It's a fantastic point. And, and this this brings up
1: debates, right? So our, our main strategy in the U.S. and most of the countries is to evacuate areas that are are currently having or may be impacted by a wildland fire. And, and I think it's smart. I mean, firefighters struggle incredibly if someone is now getting trapped. That's not just liability. Now, instead of fighting a the fire, they have to Find you, get you out of there, and so there's there's this phrase, "stay and defend," which is sometimes mm-hmm. used in, in different countries, and and it had been used more in Australia before the Black Saturday fires, um, and there was such destruction, you know. And there's probably a level of fire where people can put out embers and make some difference, but there's also mm-hmm. a level of fires where they can't handle it. And does someone in a home really know that level, and do they know what's coming? Will the weather shift? Mm-hmm. And so because of those factors, you really have to get people out. And then when there's no one there, there's no active response. And firefighters don't go to a house until they see something happening. So I've heard tons of anecdotal stories, um, you know, from some of the Cal Fire chiefs uh, here in California, where they even like driving along the road in Napa, and they see a little bit of smoldering. Wait, 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 I see something. They go to that house and they found a little smoldering spot under the house. And then they put that out. They were able to knock it away. But if they hadn't put out that one little spot, Mm. the whole house probably would have been lost over time. But it's just so hard. There's so many houses. That's sheer
0: luck. That is sheer luck.
1: It's sheer luck. And so, you know, we have to change our paradigm to prevent the little fires that eventually get out of control rather than Mm. just worry. You know, I feel like indoors, like you said, our, our strategy is hold off the fire until the fire department gets there. Mm. Now, okay, we know we're not going to do anything. If you have two hundred foot flames next to your house, no. What are we going to do about that? But if you have a little ember spot, little thing that mm. breaks off a branch, flies, lands near your house, let's build everything around and everything sealing that house so that little fires can't start a big one.
0: Are the are the conditions near? Like, imagine you living at the edge of the of the forest. And for, for some stupid reason you would re, you would ignore the evacuation and would stay. Are the conditions lethal, like from the smoke, from the radiation itself, or because you you also hear about a lot of fatalities in in wildfires? So I wonder, oh, yeah. like, to to what to what extent someone could could maybe stay and defend, like, uh, or that's just a really stupid idea to to do that. It's never recommended, obviously, because never, it's, yeah. it's not safe. Oh, and of course, people would do it for reasons, and everyone has their <laughs> own reasons to do that. Yes. Uh, it's not—we're not giving advice here to, to to do something or not. But I would like to understand me being an engineer yeah. and designing a house. Like, is it even possible uh, when, when you're on the edge of, of wildfire in an unfavorable conditions? So it depends. I uh, you, the best
1: data for some of this is from the International Crown Fire Modeling Experiments. Mm. done in canada and jack cohen who retired from forest service in in the fire lab in montana did some of the best work early on both investigating and determining embers were responsible for most ignitions um others had done some of this work but at least in the u.s he was the most to really publicize and and really bring that to the forefront Mm. and also he did these tests in those ground fire modeling experiments and said, well, how far back do we have to be from the forest for a house to survive? And okay. that's where that's we'll talk about defensible space, but, you know, how far back from the flame front do you need to be in? Usually about 30 meters from a giant crown fire, from fires through the mm-hmm. treetops in a giant northern forest was sufficient. And, and that's more than you need for smaller fires. But that is for ignition of wood. So you got to be a little cautious because uh, that level of radiant heat probably would still burn off your skin. uh, So you need to be further back.
0: I guess guess it would be like 12, 15 kilowatts. That's way more than my skin can handle.
1: Yes. Yeah. it would Third degree burns all around your your toast. Uh, But your house might survive uh, so long as an ember doesn't touch. But one of the things that is done often and what we need to think about is How do you change the area around a structure? And that's why we call it defensible space. Okay. So you don't have to have that giant crown fire next to your structure. You don't have to chop down every tree either. You can clear trees Mm -hmm. for 20 meters or depending on how tall and what they are and then space them. So chop some Mm -hmm. down, you thin it and you can cut the lower branches so that fire can't jump up into the trees. So I know an unnamed forester who does a lot of this wildfire work stayed in a fire but they have their own i don't know 20 or 40 acres um and it's incredibly well maintained it's burned every couple years prescribed fire that they do themselves the fuels are clear in in lower areas ladder fuels so the fuels that bring the fire up into the treetops are gone and so the fire reaches that property and it's no longer a giant raging crown fire it goes down there's nothing nothing to allow it to keep going and so That's a unique case where someone's a world expert and they still probably got into a bit of trouble with the local sheriff. Um, (laughs) But it takes something at that level. And I think that's something we need to think about with communities is about changing the area around. Unlike the structure fires, you've got fuel inside. I mean, we work on fuel loads inside a structure. Now we got to work on it outside. We can't remove the fuel. It's going to keep growing, but we can manage it so that fires will come. They're natural they're not going to be so big that we can't handle it it's just the scale of the problem it's kind of a big world and mm-hmm. we want to take all those areas near where people live and where there's developed and so there's there's a lot of work to do to okay. manage those those fuels near our structures and to also make sure those structures won't ignite from members that is how we prevent these buoy fires from becoming disasters
0: And what about the consequences from the smoke? I guess the smoke is not that easy to defend against. We we this year had uh, in Warsaw, we've observed smoke from uh, fires in Ukraine. From a few years ago, when you had really devastating wildfire season in, in California, there were these pictures with sky totally like red, orange, deep orange from the wildfire smoke. So I assume you had a lot of it. This year they had smoke in London from wildfires. So, so I guess this is an undefendable aspect of, of it. And I, I wonder to what extent it's also interesting to you. I mean, it does not cause the significant damage, but it's a factor.
1: It is hugely impactful. So where are risks? You know, so there's, there's okay, there's material risks. We're talking about defending structures. Mm. And we can talk about the defensible space and, and preventing ignition on the structure. And then there's life safety and the responding firefighters and how they do it, how we notify and evacuate people. Very important. A lot of people die evacuating Mm -hmm. as well. And the last is smoke. And the smoke, a lot of times becomes a really long-term hazard, right? So like, there can be long-term effects from that, not just the acute. And it can extend for so far. Yeah, there were orange skies. There's some great photos of the Golden Gate Bridge glowing orange skies. I, I've seen those orange skies mm. as a kid when I was 10 miles from a I was right next to a wildfire. Mm. Being a hundred miles away, that's weird. Like the whole state was covered. I mean, our state is is as big as a giant chunk of Europe. It's it's a very large area. <laughs> it's a large that's state, yeah. <laughs> so much uh, smoke. Yeah. And there's some noxious stuff in that smoke. And so our our lab does work. On this because I think there's a huge role for us to play. Our focus is understanding how changes in the combustion behavior. So, like mm-hmm. We have an apparatus that's very similar to the tests they do for um, toxicity of different materials in buildings. So we heat it and we burn it under specific flow, specific oxygen concentration, mm-hmm. and we try to emulate the conditions that would occur outdoors for different combustion of different wild fuels. And we're moving to WUI now, um, and so we work with a lab that exposes mice models, you know, uh, and sees their long-term effects. And one is, one might guess, it's very bad to breathe this stuff in for a long time, especially firefighters working. And we've also worked on masks and there are some chemicals in there that aren't filtered by a normal masks, but 90% or more of the issue comes from particles. Yeah. And we all went through a pandemic, Right.
0: We know a lot about particles now.
1: <laughs> Bandana yeah. doesn't do anything. We did it in yeah. the lab. doesn't do anything. And that's all firefighters typically use. You need an okay. equivalent of an N95. Mm-hmm. That's not easy for a firefighter to wear and pack for 48 hours on the fire line. We need to, to change that. But if your air quality index is getting really bad, it's very important to filter out those particles with a HEPA filter in the home And like an N95 mask uh, over your face because that gets deep, deep into your lungs. And there's some noxious stuff transporting around those
0: particles. Absolutely, yeah. We don't have wildfires, but we have horrible air quality in here. So I I understand completely what you're saying. And combustion particles are particles. And this this stuff, especially sub 2.5 micrometer particles, are, are extremely, extremely dangerous to... Long-term health effects. Yeah. Now, you've uh, mentioned firebrands many times uh, up to this point as one of the main main things. Let, let's try and talk to fire engineers who don't deal with with this stuff, like uh, an idea what um, firebrands can be. Because, uh, yeah, it's uh, sometimes a little bigger than you would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know,
1: take any campfire, yeah. blow really hard, and you see little. Yep think little sparks, but they're not sparks. They're yep. little glowing embers. Just imagine now it's a forest and you blow with the strength of a, of a really strong wind and the size of those things coming off can be large. But, but most of the hazard is actually from smaller sizes, a couple centimeters mm. in scale.
0: Like a charcoal size. Charcoal
1: yeah. and, and smaller, uh, but mm. somewhere between a large piece mm. of charcoal and maybe a centimeter because needs to be big enough to still have a lot of energy when it lands and needs Mm -hmm. to be small enough to get picked up by the wind and blown ahead and so So there's a
0: particular uh, size and weight uh, where it's uh, nastiest right
1: and and we can that's that's kind of how we figure out how far they're going to go as we find out Mm this maximum distance for certain particles and you know those they're usually glowing they can flame for a short period but there's there's like short-range spotting. If you look at pictures from Australia, the bushfires, mm. there's a lot of short-range spotting because eucalyptus are adapted to that and their bark can still be flaming. And you'll see like flaming mm. embers landing. But that's short range. The long range, the really dangerous to start new fires, which we call spot fires, is typically by smoldering pieces. So that's the flameless okay. combustion, like you're glowing, you're blowing on it and it's getting like that. And that stuff can pile up even in like crevices or on your deck or in the corners. Um, and if that area is unprotected, then it can start smoldering the wood in your structure. And eventually we mm-hmm. know that those fires get the right blow of wind. You get the right conditions. You get them large enough. They transition to flaming.
0: What distances are we even talking about? Like 50 meters, 100 meters, kilometer?
1: Yeah. Obviously it's a profile. A majority mm-hmm. is probably within a few hundred meters. A few hundred. A few hundred. Meters. Okay. But if you get a large enough plume, yeah, it's, it's hard. If you get a large enough plume, you get a fire whirl. If mm-hmm. you get high winds, mm-hmm. then it's kilometers. So kilometers. good general rule is about two kilometers. A lot of the observations of maximum spotting distance, becoming less and less likely as you go out, has been about two kilometers for spotting. But there have been reports of maybe 10 of kilometers, tens of kilometers. It's probably rare. But that one rare fire makes a big difference. Uh, mm. But it, it's been called a blizzard of embers. Mm. It is literally millions. They're everywhere okay. And so it's we don't individually track. We're, we're really I mean there are some studies individually looking at them, but we're, we're looking at this broad swath of embers. stuff is flying everywhere and we're mm-hmm. more thinking, how far can it go? How far is it capable of igniting the stuff outside a house? house okay. itself. Yeah. Another forest fire. So how mm. far is that? What's the probability that happens? And how does that change with weather and other conditions? So that's usually the way we're looking at the embers. And we still want to learn more about different materials, structures. Structures can also create embers stuff flies off them.
0: Okay. Um, I know. Sorry.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, exterior, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> yeah. We, um, we We've been there. We've done that. We've achieved an award for starting a wildfire while doing external facade flame spread tests, uh, we had a type of uh, insulation that was made of very well fire retarded foam. But there is a difference between non combustible and very, very, very well fire retarded things. The very, very, very well fire retarded things still burn. <laughs> you know, uh, it just depends on the scale of fire you expose them to. Uh, and in this case, we we had chunks of this of this material deteriorate from the facade pick up by the, by the convective plume and fly away. Uh, we could wave them goodbye. I, I had the drone. I was chasing them in the air. We had firefighters who tried uh, to shoot them down with a stream of water. They were actually quite successful in shooting down the bigger ones. Uh, we were wondering, if, if, like, is this enough to start a wildfire? I don't know. Well, Fifteen minutes later came the answer, <laughs> with uh, with a nice plume of smoke from a neighboring pile of uh, rubble and 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 trash and wood. Uh, luckily, uh, we we had fire brigade on site. Actually, we were on the fire brigade site during the experiment. We had fire brigade there, like literally, mm-hmm. were in their in, in their yard <laughs> doing the test. So <laughs> they acted very quickly. So as soon as we saw smoke, we we did clean that. But that's quite a good question. Like it's not just reserved for natural fires, if I think about it, you know, if I had this facade or this building I've burned in the middle of, of a city with a strong timber-based neighborhood, like a lot of of, of structures with, with flammable uh, exterior, there's a good chance I, uh, one could land in, in someone's house and set it on fire. So, it, I mean, we were talking today about WUI fires, but we really maybe need to talk about <laughs> WUI fires at one day. You know, uh, it's it's interesting how these things uh, travel across the the, uh, areas of of fire science.
1: Well, there is a long history,
0: and we forget
1: about just how often we had urban fires. Oh, absolutely, yes. Japan is a leader in post-earthquake fires, because when you turn off all the fire services, you break the roads and, and the gas leaks, urban conflagrations come back. To be a real problem. And and there's such a history of this. And so a great example I always tell my class is have you ever heard of the Peshtigo fire? No. No. Nobody has. It's 1871. Have you heard of the Great Fire of Chicago? Yeah. Burned down Chicago. Yeah, that one yeah. Yeah. Everyone's Same heard year? of the Chicago fire. Same week. Peshtigo fire <laughs> Same week. was the most destructive fire, uh, wildfire perhaps of its time. It was certainly the most deadly. It burned through whole communities. But I mean, those days in the 1800s, it burned the newspapers. It burned the telegraph lines. Nobody heard of it. And so mm-hmm. actually the Great Fire of Chicago was much less destructive in terms of loss of life. There were over 1,200 fatalities in the Peshtigo Fire, though. But we just, we don't hear about it because it kind of happened, well, it was in the outdoors. There were logging activities. But of course, the same weather pattern, hot, dry, windy and it was dry for quite a period, drying out fuels it was the same that happened in Chicago as happened in Peshtigo in northern or uh, northeast Wisconsin. And so mm. this is an area in the u s. near the Great Lakes. but it it's just very interesting to see this and that we don't always talk about it and remember it.
0: but there's so mm. many histories. every second big city had a major fire of that city. like that's the tradition. And what do we yes. learn after that? Make more space between buildings. Build it in, with stone, preferably. Hundred years mm-hmm. later, we're again back into dense timber <laughs> city, waiting for the next configuration. A story of mankind.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so we built these suburban communities, but we've learned a lot. We don't have yeah. to forego timber to make a structure that's going to be mm-hmm. safe. You know, um, mm-hmm. we've learned a little bit, and and we learned it on the inside. We put drywall right? Mm -hmm. And and drywall is going to have a a fire rating. We have separation. We have sprinklers. So so we have a whole system designed, smoke detectors to warn people to get out. But we just have to make sure that the exterior has something similar. Don't put Mm -hmm. flammable vinyl siding, but stucco. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things is on the exterior, don't have gaps. Like all those little holes, all those little vents. Mm -hmm. Embers just come right on in, ignite a couch, a paper, and attic, Mm. and light it up, even in-home sprinklers. We're not sure if they're that effective for wildfires, because if the vents aren't sealed, the ember gets into the attic, burns up the attic, and it collapses down on top of the sprinkler system, and now you've just got a big leak. And so we've seen a number of, and they're anecdotal, we don't have a full study, we don't have enough, unfortunately, but a lot Mm. of homes that burn from the inside out even those that should be protected. Now, did the water system run out? We we don't know. There isn't enough Mm -hmm. evidence and enough data. But clearly, we just have to tweak our thinking. And and I'm not against... I mean, fire sprinklers are incredibly effective and safe. Of course, are. But interior sprinklers aren't designed for this hazard. we got to think about how that becomes part of the the solution or not. Do do addicts get included? I mean, we just... You need to keep those little embers from getting inside. And that's going to prevent structures from
0: burning down. Yeah. I mean, they're designed for a different paradigm of fire. It, to start with, if you design a sprinkler system, you assume one fire in one space, which you can contain in a way. If, yeah. if you have a sprinkler system in your house and it starts in two places at the same time, which may, because uh, it's a lot of firebrands that may be flying your way. You, you may have a fire started. You may have a fi- five tiny fires developing at the same time each of them triggering a sprinkler, one not, And the, the, the yeah. one will be enough to destroy your, your structure. So, so, I mean, they're great, but no, not for this threat. It, 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 this is another another way. So I know from following you that, that there's a lot of work in the U.S. done to prepare, because to mitigate the, the wildfire damage. I mean, yeah. active protection, w- when the wildfire is there, it's, it's a little bit too late. and You can evacuate at, at best. Now, what sort of re- research is carried? Where you guys are looking for answers to how to prepare? Because I, I, I assume it must be like so, such a multi-level problem, from from basic technical stuff to managing policies and yeah, t- and telling politicians what to do, which probably is, is even harder.
1: Absolutely, and I've testified to Congress. It's very hard to tell politicians <laughs> what to do. They have their own agenda. Yeah. Some listen, some don't. You know, the discussion certainly got derailed by an. A, an award-winning singer who who was pushing for something, <laughs> um, and and <laughs> had very good intentions, but you know, science can be twisted by, by others. And so, I think when we look at at this problem, there's so many scales. Uh, we'll start at the biggest. We need to better manage forests. We need to do prescribed fires, getting small fires in the landscape, and some of that requires chopping mm. down some trees, not the old growth but younger ones that have Mm -hmm. filled in. If you look at a picture of a forest from the 1800s to now, the forests now are chock full of smaller trees. It used to be big trees and lots of clearing for most ecosystems. And so Mm -hmm. that's a problem and we need to get back to that. And then we won't have as many giant fires that are so destructive even to the ecosystems over time.
0: So so here the strategy would be to... Limit the maximum size of fire so it eventually doesn't reach this catastrophical level like you've said of 10 biggest wildfires that happened in the last few years.
1: Well, yeah. And so we're actually really good. We, we stop like 98% of fires when they start. It's only that mm-hmm. smallest percentage on the worst possible day, the driest, the hottest, the windiest that escape. And those are the ones that become really big. What I'm but that's saying every year, is, man.
0: That's horrible. <laughs> that's because every year. we're
1: getting the conditions that used to be every three years, yeah. three times a year. And okay. it doesn't matter how much we try to convince people with the Smokey the Bear campaign not to light a fire. There's going to be an accident. Fires have started from chains dragging behind a trailer on the road, from lawnmowers, from the tailpipe of a fire engine that malfunctions. (laughs) I mean, fires have started Uh. from everything. Sparks will happen. Kids, you have kids. Kids will do Mm. something crazy that you can never (laughs) imagine them doing and break something. Mm. So we want to prevent the ignitions. We We don't want power lines starting a lot of fires, but something will happen. And we want the landscape to then have a fire that's not enormously intense so it's not so much about the size but it's about the intensity so yeah some you know some ecosystems have always had big fire and it's going to continue and and it needs to do that like there are some trees that have what's called stand replacing so it'll wipe through those trees then it'll come back and areas around there need to prepare for that but the majority of the areas we can do work especially near communities the lower the intensity of those fires. So they're not raging when they reach a community. Mm. But we have to do it in advance. And most of it requires us to have a prescribed fire. If we we just clear some brush and chop down trees, it doesn't do it. The litter on the ground, all that stuff burns. And so we have to do the work and then burn Mm. it after. Some's ready to burn, some needs that. And there's some risk to that. And it needs to be done safely. It needs to be done well. There's been some issues with that. Um, but I, I think it can be done safely. And, and it's incredibly, incredibly important. Because then mm-hmm. your your homes are not experiencing that giant fire. And so I don't work on that large scale so much. I work, colleagues do mm-hmm. that. Our lab focuses on things like what areas of the house need to be protected? How do the embers, how, how large of a pile is needed to ignite mm-hmm. the deck? How does the crevice play a role how does the wind into that fire play a role uh, we're trying to develop there's really no model for a fire mm-hmm. spread into a wui community so there are so many aspects from the ember the probability of that fire transitioning to ignite from the home to home spread the different materials and so that we're actively working in development of that model and we're working with colleagues like Slottenberger, and we're we're trying to add this model into the Elm Fire, which is a fire spread model that he uses under active development. So that's a that's a big push is understanding this process to do that mm-hmm. and understanding how different mitigation. So I talked a lot. You know, you want to use materials that don't ignite. So a mm-hmm. wood roof, really mm-hmm. bad. Embers just catch in those little crevices, and it's going to ignite. It's it's a perfect exactly fire where the
0: fuel is. Yeah,
1: horrible. So the wood roofs have to go what's best and how do you design that how do you retrofit understanding the process so that people can make those decisions and then the signs you know as we go out from the house it's called defensible space but within that closest region right at the base of the of the walls in Mm -hmm. in the u.s is five feet that area if you have a fire the flames are like right against the window right against the wall and it's just too much for most materials so yeah. the newest mm-hmm. regulations in California that will come out later this year or next are going to prohibit flammable materials in that area. Vegetation, anything. Get rid of the mulch, put rocks down. Well, green watered grass is okay. Generally, is super hard to ignite. But it needs to be clear of any flammable material so mm-hmm. that we don't have a fire that ignites the house easily. And if we prevent 90% of those starts in a community, Firefighters can handle the rest.
0: Um, okay, That's, yeah. that's cool. I, I love working across the scale. I love working at yeah. the, the different subjects. I really like when you mentioned the mod- modeling the at community scale, like how the fires could transition from house to house. I think that is the most critical one because uh, if you can, like you said, limit the ignitions by 90%, you, you've killed a lot of momentum from that fire. You maybe yeah. have not stopped it completely. But you've significantly hindered it, its ability to spread and damage further into the city. And then, and then maybe we're back to the paradigm of where we can fight fires and not just um, escape them. Actually, uh, now now as I think about it, uh, on escaping wildfires, I had a really great interview with, uh, with Erika Koligowski, and yeah. uh, that that was fun. But uh, for the end of the of the show, it's uh, we still have a few minutes. I want to I want to hear your testimony about fire scientist escaping a wildfire, because uh, I saw uh, that on Twitter that you have uh, witnessed uh, some sort of wildfire event uh, where you are. Uh, and I would love to hear, like, how, how was it to to escape fire? What's, what were your observations from this uh, extremely realistic <laughs> test? Well,
1: it's scary. I mean, you know, we moved a couple of years ago from the East Coast and we've been through what plagues, earthquakes, now wildfires, uh, you know, storms. So we have the, the full gamut. But yeah, it was, I, you know, to
0: give some. At least background, you don't have Republicans in California. That's that's. <laughs> <laughs> no comment.
1: We're not getting political here. But you know, we're we we're, we're in a very urban area. There's very little open space around us. It's it's yeah. suburban, um, not too far from Berkeley. But okay. behind us, uh, the the complex we live in behind there. Um, there's a, an open space on a hill, which has a lot of eucalyptus mm-hmm. trees. So eucalyptus, we know eucalyptus okay. is a problem. And there was a string of arsons that day. And there okay. was a small breeze. It was actually not super dry. It was actually a decent relative humidity. Small mm-hmm. breeze. It wasn't blowing that hard. Uh, but we noticed a little plume of smoke and smelled a little something from the other side of the hill. And then we started seeing helicopters and then hearing fire trucks and then, you know... But we didn't get any messages, uh, and then we started tuning in, and then we finally get a mm-hmm. message that the other side of the hill is evacuating, um, uh-huh. and then we're like, okay, it's time to prepare. We're we're like, okay. you know, so the hills here, like the northeast side is burning, and we're on the southeast mm-hmm. side, so we kind of have to go up and over. Okay, okay. But if we got over, to okay. the top, it's going to kind of spew our way. So because with no the wind it's going to gonna be pushing. Mm-hmm. What's going on from where we are? And um, uh-huh. I had just hurt my back uh, on a hike, and this evacuation just finished it off. Uh, so we <laughs> eventually have uh. a message go out that says, All areas, including our address, evacuate now. You know, life safety threat. Like, oh, okay, get our stuff. Then a helicopter rears overhead. Evacuate now. There's a wildfire on the hill. Evacuate now, please. Don't grab your belongings. Go get your cars. evacuate are Like, okay, we're going. So,
0: so soon got in yeah. the
1: car. Yeah. It was really scary. It turned out to be fine. The firefighters had mm-hmm. a containment line. It Wasn't super dry. Wasn't high winds. I mean, this was a low risk day and yet the fire jumped up the hill. So much brush it hasn't been cleared for so long, but it's terrifying. And just, you know, we talk about evacuation, but being someone, and now I've learned, I, I, I have a small fracture in a vertebra. So, mm. and that just did it. And my leg went numb. Like, mm. what do people with medical problems do in evacuation? And what
0: if mm-hmm. there's a large area? What do you do with kids? Were your kids at home or at school? They're at home. Uh, wh- when it happened. So that's lucky. If there were, if, if that happened when they were at school, you would probably be at a lot of trouble, right?
1: Yeah, it could be a whole o- other issue. At least we were together and we were able to make it out. but. There was no one coming around to help. The messages were confusing. In the end, I think our building actually was not being evacuated and the message was overreaching. But we got uh-huh. two messages. We got a text message from the city. And then we also had the helicopter overhead saying that our specific area needed to go. <laughs>
0: People um, shouting to you from a helicopter sounds right. like a quite uh, serious. And then the cops <laughs> on, the,
1: on the road are saying different things. The communication was off. And everything got handled. Everything was safe. I wound up laying in bed for a few weeks after (laughs) resting my back. But it was, you know, but but it's so eye-opening to just see that we think of, oh, we're going to tell someone to do this. But when it actually happens, the communication system, we were lucky we got any message. Half the people we know on the hill didn't get a single message. They heard the helicopter. They saw this. It's strange in our digital age. And they have a really good app to control the messaging and everything that it still doesn't work quite right and the message doesn't get out in the right time and then the direction on the street is is being confused and there were maybe four or five different fire departments that responded at once sure that changes the communication so if it was an actual real disaster and happening in multiple areas I'm nervous of what would happen
0: and did the evacuation itself? Uh, how did it look? All, everyone getting into their cars? Huge congestion, or was it like uh, steered by the local authorities and it was okay? Or you were stuck so- in like three hour traffic jam? It
1: was not. I mean, again, it was a small area. The hill is not. It's not that huge of an but area. It's
0: quite densely populated, I guess.
1: It is densely populated. It was pretty orderly. I'm not sure everyone even evacuated. Luckily, there were no houses lost. Again, the conditions were were pretty mild for this kind of fire. It was just, there was so much fuel and someone started an arson fire or several that went up a steep slope through mm-hmm. a whole bunch of old eucalyptus brush. And so, you know, but it, you know, to see that and you're like, I don't live huh? in the forest. I don't live in the hills. And mm-hmm. I've always recognized there was a risk there, but I was like, it's not that high. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was great to see that after that, they went through and did a lot of Defensible space mitigation on this side of the hill. Mm-hmm. So not sure how impactful, but they, they brought it back a ways and they went through and cleared trees. So at least it, it highlighted for the rest of this season for everyone to do a little more work <laughs> and to take a little more conscious
0: about it. If I recall correctly from um, the interview with, with Erika, um, being involved in an event like that is significantly improved your reaction to the next uh, ones. Hopefully they will not come, but... Uh, now, as you say, the community seems better prepared. Uh, mitigation is happening. Defensible space is being created. This is an outcome of, of a fire, luckily from yeah. from a, a smaller, a smaller one. Well, uh, Berkeley is not not very in the middle of a of a forest, so I guess. Well,
1: so where yeah. we're we live, we're a little outside of Berkeley, but I'll take it back. Uh, Berkeley Hills is a massive yeah. fire hazard. It terrifies yeah. me. Uh, the 1991 yeah. Tunnel Fire resulted in significant loss of life. Um, it was Oakland Hills and a huge loss of houses. And, and the faculty okay. that I know that were, were here at that time, it's, it's traumatic bringing up those events as they were driving out through smoky, windy roads, single lane, not knowing where they were going, trying to get out and not everyone made it out. So the fire risk here is extreme and not all the mitigation, there's still wood roofs. There's still, there's, there's still some things that just shock me that haven't been done. There are some areas that have been mitigated decently and others that have not. Our campus Mm. has done a lot of work on mitigation, but that's only one small piece of the hill. And you can't, and this is a bigger problem. Okay, everyone did defensible space this year. Are they going to forget next year? You have to maintain it and it costs money. And I don't want to change my roof. I mean, there are so many wood shingled buildings out here too. Not just the roof; the whole building's made of wood.
0: I'm like, it's a little scary. Uh, hearing that from fire scientists, it's it's especially disturbing. Like, but uh, I guess this is uh, when, when you think about the, a normal person, you need to make them aware of the risks to to start working with the risk. And I guess work like like what you're doing. Uh, unfortunately, the fire's happening, and the media te- media attention to them. I guess at least one good thing that that it's it's doing is is building this understanding within the community that that there might be a problem and uh, as you said these things happen now more often you living in california for many many years you see these days happening like not every 3 years now they're every one year and every 3 years we're going to have a day that we never had you know and that uh, that that's the the most disturbing fact and i'm very happy that there are scientists like you a lot of them actually that work on this topic that develop this 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 field of knowledge and uh, fire engineering has definitely a huge role in, in making our environment uh, safer for people. Both ways S- to save environment from people as well. Uh, <laughs> Mike, uh, if, if someone wants an easy, um, but more in-depth introduction to what we have discussed, can you recommend some resources? Your your webpage is still maintained, right? Uh, the, the magical resource page of Berkeley the gold chamber of berkeley yes I, i'll link to that for sure
1: <laughs> yeah it's firelab.berkeley.edu and we have links to that i maintain to you know maps and resources for fires here a lot of the resources we have are for protection so you know we vaguely talked about it but like what if you do live in an area that might have a wildfire risk what do you do well it has recommendations you can change your vents you can Clear fuels mm. this far for this area um there's local stuff but we have a lot of, of resources for for the u.s we also have links to uh the things to track these fires and the smoke and and the different conditions i would say that there's you know we, we still lack some good like books on well and urban interface and, and all of that there's some fantastic investigative reports by nist ibhs the insurance institute for business and home safety has a lot of how-to's yeah. videos and guides uh, on protection and the national fire protection association NFPA has some great series of videos other information and and i guess if you want to get academic probably it's best there's there's some reviews by uh, myself professor fernandez peo um, sam manzello uh, and saika suzuki there's a couple reviews out there and and i think most of them are up to date and you can look at different protection measures, what we understand about embers, and you get into the academic side there. And just don't forget that the, you know, I'm, I'm only one one piece in the cog, but understanding the science is important, but getting people to do something is, is so hard. Mm. And so I, I admit I didn't recognize the huge role of the social science side when I started working in warehouse fires and buildings. But mm. you start looking at wildfires, it you get no impact without making it happen and you really need that other side of the science to, to make a difference.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I had on a podcast Catalina Stuf uh, who's leader of the Pyrolife project here in Europe and if I'm not wrong 16 or 18 PhDs pursuing their PhD around uh, wildfire urban interface topic and many many of them are oriented on communication the risk transferring knowledge from parts of the Europe to other parts of the Europe. in in general, in the communication space. And it's fascinating to see that it's as important as, you know, understanding the the fire dynamics. Like It's great that you understand fire dynamics, Michael, but if your neighbor doesn't know that, uh, principles, very, very basic principles, your house is now at risk because of of, of them. So, yeah, communication is is one of the keys. Michael, uh, as usual, it was fantastic to catch up with you. Great to see you well and improving. And looking forward to to next possibility to chat with you here. It's always a
1: pleasure and uh, just a, a major thank you for putting all the effort into getting this great resource for the fire community out there.
0: And that's it. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for coming to the show. Thank you for bringing all the knowledge about Wildland Urban Interface. And thank you for sharing your personal stories and uh, especially how you've encountered the wildfire evacuation while being partially disabled and bringing a whole new view on this story it's always interesting that we are very good at theory we know a lot but when you encounter fire some stuff doesn't really fit the image you've had in your head and uh, sometimes you have to experience fire to somehow understand fire and uh, me as a fire scientist who spends a lot of time in the fire laboratory setting fires to different objects and buildings. I certainly appreciate being able to experience this behavior firsthand because it it, uh, helps me understand it much better. The amount of challenges that Michael has brought into this episode just show you how vast the world of wildland urban interface challenges is. And there's no way a single podcast episode can cover it all. A lot of resources has been listed Many of them will be in the show notes to the episode. So if you like to follow, please do so. You can find a lot of knowledge at ABHS or NFPA websites or Michael's webpage at firelab.berkeley.edu. That's um, a great place to start uh, digging for resources. And uh, if you like this topic, I, I have not done a lot of Wildfire podcast episodes yet. So if you enjoyed that uh, subject, uh, please let me know. I would love to hear from... Uh, fire engineers who do buildings? Is is this a subject of matter that is interesting to you? Would you like to see more of that content in the podcast? For me, it's a great opportunity to learn something I don't really know that much about. So certainly, I, I, I guess I'll bring more wildfire researchers into the show, but it's up to you how many of them will be here. What's the next topic on the podcast? I always try to listen to the voice of my audience. So, If you have a good idea, please share it. And yeah, one more thing as usual. I would like to ask you once again for your five-star support for the show. You cannot believe how important that is to me as the podcaster and the podcast to receive these five-star ratings. It really, really changes the position of the show in all the lists and rankings. And it helps the podcast be discovered by people who may actually use it uh, for some good and also if you have some friends who has not been exposed to this show yet please uh, share this episode with them or ones that they find more interesting anyway thank you very much for being here with me and i'm looking forward to see you here next wednesday bye This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.